G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to read goosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. Well, I think that the US is trying to expound on the, or trying to, let's say, push these types, these countries like Thailand and China in particular to say, now you need to get consumers spending and you need to get consumer debt growing and all that. I totally disagree with that. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, Show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to ReedGoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today in the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Andrew Stotts. Andrew is currently the president of CFA Society in Thailand, which is one of Thailand's award-winning equity analysts. He is also the founder and CEO of A. Stotts Investment Research, ASIR for short, a financial service company based in Bangkok, Thailand. And prior to launching ASIR, he'd spent 20 years working in global investment banks in the Asia regions. He's also been a university lecturer uh, in finance for more than two decades, and he's the co-founder of CoffeeWorks, which is one of the specialty roasters in Thailand, one of the biggest roasters in Thailand since 1995. Huge array of experience. Really excited and pumped to have him on the show, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, doctor. You're in the house. How's it going? I'm fantastic. It's 6.30 in the morning here. I just had my double espresso and I am ready to rock. Mate, I am uh, really pumped to have you on the show. I was on your show a couple of weeks back, maybe even a month ago now, um, and really interesting to hear your story. And I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about it, but I ask all my guests that come on this show, rewind the clock. Tell us how you made your your first ever dollar as a kid. Uh, I was uh, 14. And I was wearing a pair of Levi jeans and a t-shirt and I walked up the street and went into Barlow's farm, the farm next to our house. And Mr. Barlow was there and he said, stack that hay. (laughs) And I spent all day stacking hay that was shooting out of a machine and then stacking it up. And I got paid, I suspect I got paid probably $2 and 50 cents for an eight hour day. Uh, and that was back in little Hudson, Ohio, where I grew up. And, and I did that, that job for uh, summertime uh, and it was burning hot, but that really, and one of the things I was thinking about, about before coming on this show was that who was the richest guy in my little town that was a booming town and had bloomed up at the time that I grew up 
uh, and that was the farmer. And the farmer was the richest guy because he had all the land. And so when, when, it, when a city is booming, it's the landowners in particular that really end up with getting a lot of gains from that boom. So that's, that was kind of a, a first lesson in work, but also a kind of an observation of how does a farmer become so rich? And I saw the same type of thing happening in Thailand over the years that I've been exposed here, that people with actually no business experience just end up sitting on the right piece of land at the right place at the right time. And that, that was um, my first experience making a buck. Mate, that's a, it's a great experience. And I know growing up personally myself, spending those summers, uh, you know, laboring, slaving away in the hot sun, as you just explained, it sort of, to me, made me, you know, grat- grateful that the fact that I was at college or university going to get a degree because I couldn't be uh, a laborer for the rest of my life. I'm sure you probably had similar, similar experience, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point for me. It's that I, I can remember really clearly an experience I had when I was 18. I was working in a factory and it was a very mundane job. And basically I started as a temporary worker along with some other guys. At the end of 90 days, they would decide whether they would bring us on the payroll. And at the end of you know, the 89th day, I was talking to the guy that, that I knew from my little group and I, I was just fed up with this job. It was driving me nuts. It just was so monotonous. And I looked at him and I said, tomorrow's the day. And I said, what do you, what do you, he asked me, what do you think? I said, I, man, I hope I don't get hired because I want to do something else. And I said, <laughs> I said, what about you? He says, man, I want this job bad. And I thought, wow. holy crap, why? And he said, because I love it. I know exactly what I've got to do each day. I do it. I can go home to my family without the stress of thinking about the job and all that. And I had never thought about that. And it made me realize, and I think it made me a better manager, that each person is driven by different motives and different things that they want out of life. And so what was really um, you know, tough and something really boring for me was something that really fit another guy. And I think when I went to work in factories after that as a supervisor and then a manager and then an owner, I realized that, you know, it takes all types of people doing all types of things. And so having a mutual respect for all the different jobs and who likes which and all that. That's yeah, it's such an interesting um, th- you know, experience to, to, to have at such a young age because it's quite um, profound how I only started realizing that, you know, I thought everyone thought things like me, like I'm an entrepreneur and you want to go out and strive and why would you want this mundane job just punching the clock? But some people want that, right? And you have to realize as a manager, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, that you you shouldn't hire yourself because you're, you know, you could you could do yourself out of a job. You want to hire other people like that, that, that gentleman in the factory who's just going to, you know, plug away and, and be really good at their job. Um, but we digress a little bit. I want to understand your journey to, to Thailand. You're, you're, you're not calling us from the United States today. You, you are sitting, as you said, at 6.30 a.m. where you are. How, did you, how the hell did you get to Thailand? So I grew up in Ohio in a, a little town called Hudson in between Cleveland and Akron. And basically everybody in that town looked like me. And um, I, it wasn't that I was searching for diversity. It's just that everybody looked like me. And when I went to California, I, I decided I want to go to California. And my dad said, you call your godfather. He's got a camp there and he's got a business and a life there. And I called my godfather and he says, Andy, and everybody called me Andy in those days. Andy, you come on out here and stay with me and work the summer as, at this camp, Tom Sawyer camp in Los Angeles. And that's what I did. I went and lived with him for summer, fell in love with a lovely lady in, uh, in, in California. And then later I went back to school and then I moved to California. And then when I really, when I moved to California, I first was in the Oakland area. I had no money. I had to study really hard or else I was going to lose my student loan and have to start paying it back. And it was just a very, very tough time. My girlfriend that I was with, we broke up. But the main thing that happened in Los Angeles and in Oakland was that I was exposed to people who didn't look like me. And I was absolutely fascinated of all different types of people that I met. And I became interested in, when I moved to Long Beach and went to Long Beach State, it had the largest population of Cambodians outside of Cambodia. I had a Cambodian girlfriend in university and I just read every book on the topic and got to know her family and really appreciated their culture. So when it came time for me to graduate, um, I went to work for Pepsi as a manager, not in finance, though I studied finance. And they just told me, you should take some time off because you're going to be working your butt off. So I 
I flew to Thailand and I went to Japan and Thailand for that trip in 1989. And once I landed in Thailand, I just thought, oh my God, this place is on fire with economic activity. I wonder if I could make it here. That would be a challenge of a lifetime. And eventually I, I sent out my resume to a bunch of different businesses and universities. And I got a university that says, said, why don't you come and teach finance? So I sold everything I owned and I put, shipped 13 small boxes on a plane with me. I landed in Bangkok in July 31st, 19, 1992, when I was you know, 26 years old. And basically, I taught finance for the first year. And then the stock market was booming. So I took a job in 1993 in the stock market. And my career just went up and up. I had a lot of great experiences. There was lots of downs too. But really, it was a great experience. My life so far in Thailand now, 27 years here. Wow. Wow. 26 years old. I was actually 26 years old when I moved to the United States. So similar story, but we were going opposite directions. You were going to the Thailand and I was going to the United States. It's... It's it's kind of profound how, you know, talk to me a little bit about the mindset there. You've gone and visited a place, exactly the same story as what I did. I went and visited New York and I fell in love with New York. I was like, I've got to live here at some period of my life. I ended up marrying an American girl, uh, my wife now, and it sounds like something similar happened in your story. But but what what does what the burning desire inside of you wanted to you know, sell it all in, in the States and move halfway across the world? It was right after the 1992 uh, Rodney King riots where LA was burning and I was a supervisor in the factory at Los Angeles at Pepsi. And, and all of my team were, you know, uh, from very, lots of mixed backgrounds from um, Hispanic as well as African-American and others. And these guys were my friends and we worked together and we stood up on the top of the Pepsi building and just saw the fires burning across Los Angeles. And then, and then I was living on at, uh, in Long Beach along Pacific uh, Coast Highway. And I saw these, you know, police cars going in like flying V formation down the road. And I thought, what the heck has happened with America? You know, it's just sad. And, and then I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really against guns and the gun violence that I saw. And I just thought, you know, Thailand, people treat each other really in a kind way. Now they have all kinds of other downsides that, you know, every single country has, but I was just enthralled with the culture and the people and the way that they interacted. And then, and then the, the economy was booming. And I just felt like, you know, this was a challenge of, could I move somewhere where I didn't speak the language? And I had $2,000 in my pocket and I had $20,000 of student loan debt. And I took an 80% pay cut to, to work as a teacher at a university. And I thought, if I could make it there, I'll make it anywhere <laughs> and truly Love i it. thought yeah if i could learn the language learn the culture try to you know get into this and i gave myself five years and i said at the end of five years i'll you know reevaluate so that was awesome. it awesome man well congratulations it's, it takes a lot to move halfway across the world and that's what this whole podcast is about interviewing ceos and founders and entrepreneurs people like yourself who just Say one day, hey, I'm, I'm stuff this. I'm going to go somewhere else and, and give it a go, give it a crack. And and I love that you put a time limit on it because a lot of people, you know, the worst case scenario is you move back to the United States and get another job. Like it wasn't, it wasn't do or die, right? But uh, but I love that you challenge yourself to go out and make it happen. And um, I, um, tell I, I would say that your listeners and your yourself and your topic is even more of a challenge because I only brought my labor and my you know education to bear. But if you're going to bring your labor and your education and your capital to invest in a piece of property and that type of thing, you know, it, it's a further step of commitment that I didn't make when I came to Thailand because I had nothing. And so it's an interesting, you know, addition and complication that, you know, people who follow your show are, you know, either doing or considering doing and you've done. Right. No, no, it's moving capital internationally. It's, it's, it's very easy. It's like international travel back in the 70s and 80s. It was very hard to get around the world. Now, in 24 hours, you can be anywhere in the world. You know, uh, next week, I'm off to Europe. The uh, last month, I was in Australia. You know, it's, it's very jump on a plane and get anywhere. Um, but, but what I want to ask you is, I'm so fascinated by the opportunity, I guess, that you stumbled across in the early 90s in 
Southeast Asia and, and the, the boom of the time. Do you want to maybe walk the listeners through the growth that you've seen over the last 20 odd years and, and how that is now shaping the way world economics is and how developing countries are having more of a seat at the table, so to speak, as you know, we're seeing stagnant wages in the Western world and you know, we're seeing the rise of, of, of China's and uh, you know, the, these, these people coming out of poverty into the middle class. Well, that's what we've been told, at least by the media. What's your take on all of that you know, from all the way back in the early 90s to today um, and, and, you know, cause you're living and breathing it, your, your boots on the ground. Well, when you think about it, I left, um, a, an industrial zone in Ohio, particularly Northeast Ohio. Uh, and I moved to a, an industrial zone that was dying basically over the next couple of decades into a region that was booming. Now, the key thing to realize is two things that I talk about. One is the, the idea of farms to factories. Mm-hmm. And the other one is basic infrastructure. When I say farms to factories, when development comes to a country like Thailand, as an example, um, all of a sudden you have investment in factories and workers lay down their tools from their farms and they go into the factories. When this happens, the output of the country will increase pretty dramatically and the economic activity will increase massively. And we're talking about a country like Thailand with 65 million people, that that transition takes about 10 to 20 years. And once it's done, it's like a cliff. It stops. There's no more movement from farms to factories. Everybody's in the factories. Now, the second one is what I call basic infrastructure, which when the movement is happening from farms to factories, you know, there's not highways and roads and factories and all the infrastructure needed for that. So every bit of economic investment by a country at that time has a marginally massive impact. So the first toll road that went from the airport into downtown came two years after I arrived and it cut my time going to the airport by you know, an hour. And that's a massive improvement. Now, now we've got 50 different toll roads and in, in it, the next one has only an incremental small improvement. So what I would say is that it's the basic infrastructure building, the buildings, the roads, the power plants and all that stuff that that causes this boom. So you have these two factors that are going on at the same time, the labor shift into factories and the investment in infrastructure. This causes economies to boom. We saw it in Thailand, we're seeing it in Vietnam, and we saw it in China. But the key thing about it is that eventually it stops and it will stop very abruptly. And that's what happened in China when we say, okay, China GDP growth used to be 12% or something and now it's only six or seven. It's because the shift from farms to factories have happened. It's because basic infrastructure is done. Incremental investment is small. So I was able to live through that boom time when the shift was happening with those two factors. And it's just remarkable. It, 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 that is remarkable. And I love, thank you for, for breaking it down like that because I think, you know, to the average listener here, we, we're investing in, in, a, in a Western world, a very developed country. Um, and, and we hear on the news these massive growths over the last 20, 30 years in China and, and, and other Asian countries. Um, but, but that whole shift from farm to factory, I think it's really interesting. So what you're kind of saying is it gets to a point where you get full saturation. You can't do any more factories because you, know, you still need people being fed, right? People still need to eat. Uh, the millions and millions of people that, that, that were used to farm the land are now in the factories, but you've got to go kind of back the other way in order to have a, a well-rounded uh, economy. So what tends to happen, you know, in your mind, once you hit that full saturation point, like where, where do you go from there? Well, I think that the U.S. is trying to expound on or trying to, let's say, push these types, these countries like Thailand and China in particular to say, now you need to get consumers spending and you need to get consumer debt growing and all that. I totally disagree with that. I think that what you need to do is you need to start to increase the value that you add in these factories. In other words, the technological intensity of of your factory. So for instance, you may start to bring robots into your factory. You may start to automate your factory. Now keep in mind on the on the food side and the agricultural side, the agriculture sector, of course, when you have this shift from farms to factory, it must become more efficient. And so the that sector is trying is trying to become more efficient so that the it's hard for the farmers to go back because they wouldn't recognize practically what's happening at the farm level. But the point is, is that really it's a time to make sure that that your factories and your businesses are starting to add more value. 
if you look at the gross profit margin of um, countries or companies globally, I just recently did a study. I added up every country company in the world and I added up their financial statements, the balance sheet and the profit and loss. And if I look at the gross profit margin, that means that think about coffee as an example. We sell a pound of coffee, but the main cost is our green coffee beans. That's the gross, uh, that's the cost of goods sold and therefore the gross profit margin is the difference. The average gross profit margin around the world is about 28%. In the US, it's about 30%. Now, the average gross profit margin in China is 18%. In Thailand, it's 18%. That gross profit margin that's 10 percentage points below is really a measure of the limited value add that's happening in their production. Whereas you can look at Apple getting a 40% gross profit margin, they're adding a huge amount of value through higher value services and higher value. They're shifted, they've shifted most of the lower value activity onto the manufacturers in Asia. And now the challenge for manufacturers in Asia is how do we get our gross profit margin up from 18% getting up to 28% on average? And you can only do that by brand building and getting your brands out there and starting to add more value. And I think that's the real the challenge that's happening. Now, I, I did my PhD in China and I went back and forth quite a bit. And I could see that, you know, I, for, for, my, for your American listeners, I would say don't discount the fact that the Chinese people are innovating every single day at the factory and at the business level. Um, they are trying to produce better products and services, and it's you can see it when you're there. And so that is a major, you know, challenge that let's say the U.S. is going to face. You know, innovation was not an issue years ago with China or Thailand or these countries. It was just really labor that they were bringing. But there's so much more that they're bringing, and they want to bring to the table. And it's interesting that you bring that up because it's it's that brand is that push to get that last 10% or that, that, that jump in profit margin. So now that the place, these developing countries like China and Thailand, they're being the soup to nuts. You know, they're develop, trying to develop brands that uh, consumers want. Um, so they can do all the manufacturing in, in Thailand or in, in China, and they can also have the consumer spending in their home countries because they have that brand awareness. Um, my question to you is, what, when you have all this growth and, and you have these companies doing, trying to get that next 10%, squeeze the lemon out of, uh, squeeze the juice out of the lemon, wh- how, how, how far, how, where's the ceiling here? You know, like you can only, you're, you're, you're talking about this, this farm, to ta- uh, farm to factory, you come, you come to a slowdown. It, does that indicate that, that China's of the world have transitioned from a developing country into a more of a, "Quote unquote second world country," and so their growth is not going to be as 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 dramatic as what we've seen in the last twenty to thirty years. Absolutely, um, I think the the key thing to this farms to factories and the basis of infrastructure, these two things that you see in any emerging country, is that w- one day it all stops, and and it's it could be a crisis that causes that, it could be something else that causes that. But it just, all of that stops. Now, think about China. There's 400 million people who have entered the workforce from the, fa- from the farms. And, and of course, that has an impact on labor costs across the world. And as you mentioned when we talked earlier about the idea of labor uh, and wages and, and that in the U.S. have been hit massively because of this huge abundance of people coming into the workforce. But ultimately, uh, I would say that uh, expecting China to grow uh, at six or seven percent is is probably a very realistic expectation, and and thinking that they need to juice their economy in one way or another to get back to twelve percent is impossible. It would be very uh, it just it just it's just very very difficult for that to happen. And I think that's really the lesson: is that when it's done, it's done, and then it goes to back to something high, but much lower than where it used to be as far as the growth is concerned. Right. So we, we keep hearing about in the media, particularly in the Western worlds, you know, America, uh, America and Australia and Europe, that um, the huge growth in the middle class in, in China. Is that actually true? It's very, very true. Um, I mean, the, the, 
to see the number of people that have come into the workforce that have money to spend, you know, in their pocket, uh, that's massive. But also to see some of the trends that are happening there that are they're really leading the world in some of these, such as um, the, the application that they use called WeChat. And, and WeChat now has more than a billion users on it. And basically, when I go to China, I don't need cash. There is nothing that cannot be paid with just using, and I don't need any card or anything. All I need is my mobile phone. And with my mobile phone, I can pay for every single thing, including if I wanted to pay back money I owed my friend, I just scan my, car, my phone with his phone and transfer the money. So that is amazing. The second thing is about five years ago, I was amazed to see that basically Chinese people were ordering things online. They would not go to shops and stores anymore. They were receiving stuff every single day at their offices, at their homes, and that it, they had completely adopted that model of delivery you know, to home or to office rather than going out to the store. And then, and then when you look at their exposure to the quality of the products and services that they've been getting, they are getting much more demanding about what they want. And that really is where the brand opportunity comes. And this is where I think that the whole Trump, uh, you know, the, the China trade war is just, it's really, you know, uh, dangerous because the fact is, is that China could be America's number one ally in, in Asia. There's a lot of things that Chinese people all the way from um, you know, uh, farmers up to politicians admire about America. They've been to study and develop themselves in America. The, the key to their success was adapting capitalist principles under a communist framework. So they actually get, got this massive success through applying what they learned from America. But unfortunately, America just feels the need to demonize them. And then once you do that, you know, you, there's just no getting out of it. But the point is, is that uh, the Chinese people would love to buy American products as long as they're suitable. You know, you can't sell a car that doesn't fit in a parking spot in China and think, oh, those Chinese people won't buy my car. Well, no, your car is not suited for the market. But if you take Apple as an example and iPhones, they want to buy these things. But when you start a trade war, then they don't want to buy them anymore. So talk to me a little bit about the trade war. Like we don't talk a lot about on this show about the trade war and, and you know, even in Australia, to an extent, to an extent, this whole fear around globalization, um, trying to bring manufacturing back to these developed countries. What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, in terms of why would people want to try and bring manufacturing back to a developing country, a developed country, I should say, rather than leaving it with the developing countries? So, um, there's a lot I could say about the trade war. The main thing I would just say is that uh, I believe that in the U.S. government. Um, there's people who really just want to have an adversarial role with China and it benefits them and their supporters to do that. And, and those people have a very, very loud voice in America. So unfortunately, the narrative is going to be set up like that. And we're going to miss the opportunity of a lifetime, which is to have a fantastic partner of, in China. Now, let's talk about the other thing that you asked about, which is moving a labor back to America as an example, or a developed country. I think that what, what Trump and, and the, the administration is missing is you, we have a golden opportunity. First of all, wages have been stagnant in America for decades. And you know, as I say, it's very hard to fight 400 million people coming into the workforce globally. That level of supply of labor will depre de, you know, depress the, the, uh, the price of labor. And America just kind of gave up and just shifted all of its stuff you know, manufacturing because the price was just so low. But the fact is, is that between um, American ingenuity and American innovation, um, America could take back manufacturing back to America now where the American wages are at a lower rate than that they were years ago. And the level of skill and innovation uh, ability of most of the American workers is higher than what you see in the more develop, developing countries. And meanwhile, the other thing to remember is that wages in China have now risen um, so dramatically that the average person in Shanghai is, is really, you know, not much different from the average person in uh, a moderately, you know, priced city around the, uh, the U.S. or around the world. So the labor differential has been contracting so that now it's very close. So the question is, is, is American manufacturing or American people up to 
taking back the a manufacturing of some particular products and services and bringing their knowledge, their innovation, and their manufacturing skills and their branding to bring that back to America. I think this is a golden opportunity, and that's what I believe that the Trump administration should really be you know, uh, supporting and encouraging and driving bringing those jobs back. Interesting. No, it's, it's, it's a very interesting topic because you know, we have a lot of narrative in, in the media um, from, the, from the administration about um, you know, bringing jobs back to America and all that sort of stuff. Um, but how, do you, how does one go even about doing it? You, you talk about that the wages in China are at parity or you know, approaching parity with, with, you know, um, in a manufacturing sense. So you, it's not like just turning on a light. You can't just be like, oh, manufacturing's back. You know, like there's infrastructure in and around that. So you know, where you grew up, um, being in the, the Rust Belt, how, what are you seeing from a quote-unquote manufacturing you know, resurgence in, in, in the United States, if, if any? Well, I think that you really have to, uh, it, it has to be rebuilt. The infrastructure that worked for Cleveland, Ohio, as an example, is not the infrastructure that's going to work for competing in the modern age. So I think that, um, you know, we've seen it, let's say, with Silicon Valley as an example, that there's been an infrastructure built in people and technology around that. And I think that we're going to have to see that type of infrastructure built um, around different technologies in different sectors, you know, as much as possible. But the other thing I think really it comes down to the average American man or woman that they think, I want to do manufacturing. I want to build quality products at a good price. And I, you know, I see glory in that. I see, you know, beauty in the idea of, of manufacturing. And, you know, and we need to do it before some of the basic skills of manufacturing are actually disappear from the workforce when all of the manufacturing has gone to, you know, to Asia. You know, there are a lot of skills that just aren't there in the workforce and we have to rebuild those skills. So it's not an easy task, but I would say the number one thing to remember, and this to me is kind of a critical thing, and that is rarely does true innovation come from large companies. True innovation comes from small companies, small ideas that end up attacking large companies and their stodgy, you know, ways. And uh, yeah, and unfortunately, America somehow has gotten to the point where the idea of, of, of supporting and coddling industries, even the large banks, as an example, um, you know, the, the, the lure of regulation of industries is so attractive as a potential solution to the problem that, you know, the level of regulation that's been put on banks as well as all kinds of other industries, um, those regulations to me just cause all kinds of unintended consequences. And the fact is like I used to work at Citibank and I always say there's massive pockets of inefficiency in that bank. If you allowed a small startup to not be regulated so heavily and allow it to attack one little part, let's say the consumer lending part or whatever, of Citibank, they could tear it down. You wouldn't need to break it up. You know, the forces of competition and the desire of a young entrepreneur to beat another is the power that must be unleashed in American society. The solution is not gonna come from large companies. And so remember that innovation comes from these small people, small businesses. So really there has to be true support of regulatory, you know, uh, forbearance at a small level and all kinds of government um, encouragement to see small businesses innovate and bring that innovation to knock out the large competitors, you know? Interesting. No, you, it, look, man, you, I could talk to you for hours about this. This is such an interesting topic because there's so many different uh, opinions out there of how things should be run. Um, unfortunately, globalization, in my opinion, the train's left the station. You can't really pull that train back. Uh, and, and it's now how do you ride the wave of innovation as an entrepreneur, as a country, as a government? How does that all, uh, you know, affect, you know, from, from job creation all the way through to taxation? Uh, there's a lot of things we can, we can cover on this. But in your opinion, where, where does the future, where's the next 10 to 15 years hold, 20 years hold for, for, for America versus the, the Asia region, you know, developing countries like the Chinas, the, the Philippines and um, the Bangkoks, uh, the Thailands of the world, I should say. I, I would say that, uh, as far as from what I can observe about the U.S. and its relations with Asia, I think it's only going to get worse. I think that um, the people that are in power, as well as the even without, uh, you know, Republicans, 
Republicans and Democrats are pretty strong at fighting as opposed to working with other countries. And, you know, the, the, the TPP, one of the things that was pushed in the last administration was a Trans-Pacific Partnership. And there was one country that was excluded, and that was China. So the whole TPP, to me, was a political move to try to outmaneuver China. And rather than trying to work with China and see China as a partner, unfortunately, I believe the forces in America are going to continue to use force through the U.S. military uh, and through the U.S tools that they have. And the end result of that is just going to be uh, worsening relations and groups moving into other pockets. I think the biggest, biggest impact of this whole thing is going to be a new monetary system that's going to develop over the next, let's say, 10 years. And this, this, would, this wouldn't need to happen if America was playing its cards right. But what America took, did after 2008 is that uh, the Americans took over the global financial system. I now call it the US global financial system. And basically they forced every country, uh, every bank in every country to comply with their regulation. For an example, if an Australian person moved to Hong Kong and wanted to set up a business in Hong Kong, they would have to, when they open up their bank account, they would have to, uh, uh, they'd have to fill out a US IRS document to claim that they were not a US citizen. And, to, to be able to reach, could you imagine in America, I told my dad this, imagine that you go down to a local bank to open up a bank account and you have to fill out a Chinese government document. And it's in Chinese, by the way. Uh, you have to fill that out to confirm that you are not a Chinese citizen. Interesting. Now, What's the point of all that? Like what to control, um, keeping tabs on people? What is it? Originally, it was to say, well, we want to collect taxes. If we can find any Americans out there, um, we want information uh, to, to collect taxes on those people in case they're hiding. But it quickly became a political tool where now, basically, they have control of the financial system through this, uh, this you know, what's called FATCA. And it basically means that for an American person like me, most of the Americans abroad, when you go to a bank, it's almost impossible to open up an account because they don't want to deal with the U.S. Because the U.S. basically says, if you don't comply with this and prove that you've complied to this, you will be penalized and the penalizations will be massive. So they've had to all comply, almost all the banks out there. Now, the benefit of having control of the U.S. global financial system is that as soon as someone misbehaves in the world, you can cut them out of that system. And so it's happened most, the strongest that it's happened is with Russia. And basically the sanctions that U.S. has put on Russian companies, individuals, and the countries has squeezed them out of the U.S. global financial system where they're forced now to go to China and other places to try to figure out how to exchange money and, and, and not use dollars to do that. And America is insistent on using these types of really, really brute force tactics that I, I think eventually it will actually lead to China and, and, uh, and, and Russia and some countries in the Middle East to then come together and say, we need uh, another type of currency that we can transact in, in case the US government decides that so-and-so is persona non grata. And that is going to eventually, I believe, form and when you add on the fact that that's going to happen, along with the amount of debt that the U.S. has now accumulated and the fact that many countries may not want to buy the U.S. Treasury you know, bonds as they have in the past, that the fall of the dollar, I think, is a longer term trend. What America, the main thing that America has is military power. And to be able to demonstrate military power and to demonstrate political power, that will ultimately be what they will do to try to maintain control over the situation. Rather than deciding that we want to work with other countries, we want to cooperate. And, and yes, other countries have done bad things or wrong things. We want to discuss that with them, but we can work it out. But so far, it's very hard to see that someone sensible will be able to put a stop it. Interesting. And, and sorry uh, to my listeners, uh, we're having a bit of a technical difficulty. Uh, yeah, just to, just to summarize what you're saying was more in and around the, the, the United States has inf infiltrated the banking system in the, around the world in order to control currency, in order to control dollar. And then that is obviously pissing off a lot of other countries uh, like the Chinas of the world and the Russias, um, which is going to potentially then cause more friction 
And the way in which America is stamping its authority is through its military prowess. And um, it's, it's a very interesting time, you know, and, and we, you know, I've, been, I've not even talked to you on this show about Bitcoin, but how that, you know, you know, I know from an American standpoint, it's, it seems to be very um, turn the nose up at because it is an opportunity where these countries could trade currency outside of the U.S. dollar, um, which, uh, which I, I, you know, for, for 30 seconds, I'd love your I'd love your opinion on that. So the point is, is that um, ultimately the hardest part about Bitcoin comes when you're going to move it into a, another, let's say, a real currency. Let's say that you're going to buy a piece of land, as an example, and it's going to cost you a million bucks and you have it in Bitcoin and you go to the owner of the land. You say, I want to buy this and I'd like to buy it with Bitcoin. And he says, what's Bitcoin? And then you say, he says, I like coal hard cash. And so that means that you're going to have to somehow get that Bitcoin into cash, that last mile. And the point is, is that's where regulators and the government can come in and try to control it. And I think that the threat of Bitcoin to the U.S. control of the financial system is pretty massive. And so um, one of the risks to investing in Bitcoin, from my perspective, is that the regulatory impact, they're just going to keep trying to tighten down on it as best they can. And of course, Bitcoin and other developments of other types of currencies are going to keep trying to get around it. But I am more of a libertarian and I believe that, you know, we need to have all options available of, of payment and monetary systems and all of that. So I'm very much in favor of it. But when I see that it can be used against the U.S. to, to allow uh, countries to, expand, to, to, ex, to exchange currencies and exchange and do business outside of the U.S. dollar, I think that that is a huge threat. And I don't know how exactly the U.S. government can handle it, but one thing that they can do is try to handle that final mile where the money's got to go either into or out of Bitcoin, and there they control the banking system. And if we can get around that banking system, then ultimately there's a chance that Bitcoin can really start to substitute. And then in that case, that is the substitute for uh, the U.S. just taking over the whole financial system. And, and do you think it's, it's part and parcel of putting sanctions on China, like all, all in and around control of financial wealth uh, around the world. It surely has to be, right? Well, imagine, I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a case of a, of a, a mosque in, in London that had went to the bank and the bank basically said, your account's been closed and we, you cannot access it. And they asked why, and they said, and we cannot tell you why. And it took an investigative reporter a lot of work to find out that they had been put on some sort of blacklist, which basically meant that they were cut out of the financial U.S. global financial system. And they had to dig deep to find out how they got on this list. But eventually they found that some political enemy in a Middle Eastern country deemed them as a, uh, a terrorist organization that never had any involvement with terrorism. And then they got on this list and they were immediately cut out of the U.S. banking system. And what the point that the reporter said is it's impossible for them to the average get person could on. never even figure out what happened and to get back on would be almost impossible. This is very hard for us to comprehend in America because everybody has access to the financial system. But imagine if your bank just said, you know, we don't Sorry. like you, <laughs> we don't like you, therefore, boom. And so the arbitrariness of it can be a big, big issue. And of course, think about it. A great example is imagine if, the, if, if uh, let's just say, uh, Russia or China or some other country basically uh, went to uh, the, the, the secretary, uh, let's take uh, Dick Cheney as an example, or Donald Rumsfeld or someone like that and said, we deem these persons as, uh, as war criminals, let's just say. And therefore, we are stopping their access to any money, any cash that they have. We will stop it all. And then once they stop that, how would America respond to that type of action? It would be like an act of war to most American politicians. And that's, of course, what we're doing constantly with other countries. Interesting. Wow. Wow. You have completely blown me away. And I knew this interview was going to be good. So I'm really hoping all my listeners are taking, frantically taking notes down. Um, but mate, I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we have been talking for, for a long period of time. And I can continue to talk to you for, forever. But towards the end of every show, I like to ask my, uh, my guests to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Definitely. Mate, what is the number one habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? 
So the number one habit is to have a written plan. Absolutely, without a written plan, you're just flailing about. <laughs> Blowing in the wind, as they say. <laughs> yep, yep. Mate, my second question uh, in, in this lightning round is, who has been the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, by far, a man named Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Uh, he was a teacher of mine when I was 24, 25 years old, and he is a statistician and a master in quality in manufacturing and service, and he taught the Japanese about uh, quality and to, to actually study with him when he was 92 years old and still teaching strong. He influenced me. He blew my mind. He blew my mind with his concepts, but he also gained my respect with his innovative thinking at the age of 92. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, and I wrote, I, wrote a, I wrote a book about him called How to Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 points because I wanted the employees in my factory to understand what he taught. Interesting. Wow. How long ago? Obviously, he's not with us anymore. Did he pass? He passed in 1993. Right, right. Well, mate, huge, hugely influential person. Out of all the businesses you've had and you, you currently have, um, what's the biggest, what's the number one tool, whether it be hardware or software related that you use right now? The number one tool is software related. It's a tool that I created because I was just so frustrated. I was trying to advise my management team in the coffee business. I was working as an analyst at an investment bank and Dale, my best friend, was running the coffee business. They had passion about running the business. They, they, they knew what they were doing. But when I spoke finance to them, it went over their head. And so I had to design a tool that would help me communicate. And basically, I designed something called world-class benchmarking. And it's a simple one-page tool that assesses the financial performance of any company in the world relative to its global peers. There's no financial ratios. It's a 1 to 10 scorecard. And everybody knows how to read a scorecard. And I deliver that to the management team on a monthly basis. And that is something that not only has worked for my company, but it's something that I've helped you know, other companies to focus on how to make real profitability out of an ongoing business. That's awesome. Wow. Like, so, so WCB, what's this? Yeah. Again? What, world, world-class benchmarking. World-class benchmarking. What sort of inputs do you have to put into the, I, I take it as a spreadsheet to, it's, to, it's, to get... It's very, it's very simple. And I had to design it simply because I knew that the head of marketing, the head of sales wouldn't be able to, to handle it. The, the inputs to this is very simple. It's, it's revenue, it's profits, it's assets, and it's those things over time. Let's say I usually look at a five-year trend, but if, if any of your listeners said, hey, I would like to know my company's score on this world-class benchmarking scorecard, they can send me a message uh, at me at Andrew Stotts or any of the links that we have in the show notes, and I will try to uh, score their company and help them see you know, where their ranking is as far as number one measure that I come up with, which is called profitable growth. Awesome. Well, my second last question for you is um, we, we, we're all put on this, this earth to, to influence people. When you're in your older age, um, laying, uh, you know, on, on your deathbed, hopefully it's many, many years to come, but you, you, you're surrounded by friends and family and you look to the youngest member of the family, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give to that person? Uh, I think the advice that I got from reading and learning about Buddha, Buddhism is that life is suffering. It is not a case of trying to chase high after high, great time after great time. True success in life comes with understanding that life is suffering. And you, I mean, I'm in tears as I, you know, talk about this. But the point is, is that in your life, you will be knocked down to the ground on many occasions. And the true success that you will have is to figure out a way to get the support of your friends and family to get yourself back up and get back on track. And it is that getting back up on track and the example that you set as an individual to honestly and ethically get yourself back up on track is the message that I would want to send to the youngest members in the family that we all suffer, we all get knocked down, and it's up to us to get ourselves back up and get back on it. And it's through the support of friends and family that we do that. And when I was young, I just thought life was about going from high to high. 
Love it. Love it, mate. Last question. Um, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. They want to get their hands on the WCB. They just want to learn a little bit more about what you do. Where do they go? So first thing is anybody listening can just directly email me at me at andrewstarts.com, number one, and any question or they want to find out about WCB. The second thing is they can go to myworstinvestmentever.com. And if you have a story of a loss, just give me a click on there. I've got voicemail that you can send to me of that. And then finally, I have a blog called becomeabetterinvestor.net where I publish a lot of what I'm doing. So those are the three ways to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for taking generous time out of your day, early part of the day where you are right now. But I just want to quickly recap on all the things that we've spoken about today. Really, just I've been blown away with your understanding and knowledge um, of d developing countries, the whole far farm to, to factory uh, analogy that you, you, you broke down for us at the beginning of the, uh, the call. Uh, and then talking about how these developing countries come to a bit of a, pla uh, a, a, a cliff when infrastructure has then got to come online uh, followed thereafter. I also loved how you broke down the relationship between the United States and China and how um, the US has got its finger, uh, well not finger, it's, it's control of the financial system and how you know, disruption and more regulation, more regulation, more regulation is not necessarily the answer to making our countries move forward and towards the, the better future that we all are, we all want, um, and and how you know the developing countries are transitioning out of developing countries into stable economies, and I think they're going to have a huge seat at the table, or and already do have a massive seat at the table um, in the next ten to fifteen years. Uh, did, did I leave anything out? I think that's it. Cool, man. Well, look, as again, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll catch up soon. Amen. Well, there you have it, another cracking episode, truly filled with some incredible advice from, from Dr. Uh, Dr. Andrew. Uh, if you want to know any more about Andrew, jump on my website at readgoosens.com. Make sure all, you'll check out all the show notes from today's show. If you want to check out that FWCB, uh, uh, the scorecard, which I think was really, really interesting, please hit him up. Um, well, I'd like to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Mm -hmm.